This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Here we are, Wharton Moneyball, at the uh, campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Here it is on a Wednesday, hot and humid Wednesday morning. Do not have in the studio our other colleagues, Eric Bradlow and Cade Massey. They are in Rome doing business conference type things. Rough life for them. Rough life. It's actually just, let's, let's harken back for a moment before we dump, uh, jump into to sports. Our previous guest, John Urschel from last week. Yes. Of the uh, former Baltimore Ravens. For, former Baltimore Raven, Reinemann, current, uh, Reinemann, MIT, current MIT PhD just, uh, student in mathematics. Right. Being asked like why he wants to be a mathematician and his answer was, couldn't figure out a better job. That is the best thing to do because... You know, you get to travel, you get to be your own boss, you get to think about anything you want. We, it's we true, it's a great gig. We didn't actually tell him about the, you know, the demands of publishing regularly and often. Oh, I mean, he'll find that out. I mean, it's not a perfect gig, but <laughs> yes, things it's of a that pretty nature. good gig as um, these things go. Yep, and uh, so John has this great new book, Mind Over Matter, and um, Mind and Matter, and I maybe we'll hopefully have a chance to, to unpack that book later. But we have a lot to talk about, Shane. This has yeah. uh, been, a, been a rather... Um, fantastic finale-oriented week. Yeah, um, I mean, while we're wrapping up a lot of very exciting finals and stuff like that, kind of launching into the dog days of summer now, I yeah, suppose. Well, yeah, it's, um, uh, so actually, uh, speaking we'll of the dog days... We'll have to ruminate about meaningless baseball games for like a little while, <laughs> we but, will but, have, but before that, we can actually talk about meaningful right, games. So I love how you talk about the dog days of summer, because I'm rolling into a habit of taking my new dog, I have a dog now for a few months, ah. totally a new thing for our family, and I've been taking Pearson out for an 8 o'clock walk around the park at dusk with the baseball game in my pocket Pearson? on the radio. Pearson is the name of Named after the, the statistics lemma, I assume? <laughs> That's what people do ask me. No, he is actually named after the character from This Is Us, the Pearsons. Well, I had no idea about this show. My my, my daughters okay. were, uh, were the uh, the uh, ch- I would assume your daughter would have named him after the name and Pearson, name lemma, and Pearson one lemma, one of the most famous Pearson know, statistical results right. out there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was not the truth. But I've been listening to the, to the baseball games and we will be doing lots and lots of baseball in, in the cup months because basketball has ended yep. hockey has ended so yep. let's start with um i guess we should start with well no we should start with hockey yeah, and that's should. important because yeah. this has been quite a run for boston and um <laughs> we were we were we yeah. were we were nervous we being new york and the rest of the uh, the rest of the country because that boston would get another championship would be a, under their belt right right so and, and in fact it was settled before the nba finals were settled so it was an, actually an opportunity for them to win three in a row that's right. Even though they had been eliminated already from yeah. the, from the NBA, so the Celtics did play in the, in the in the playoffs, but they didn't make it. But the Bruins didn't win, and so let's unpack this a little bit from mm-hmm. your angle. Well, I, I think I mean it's fascinating. I mean, I I was very pleased by the outcome myself. Mm, uh, my Boston allegiances only really kind of extend to the Red Sox and the Patriots, and that's good enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I was I was kind of pleased by the result in a couple ways. I mean, obviously St. Louis. 
in in you know the the main way is that St. Louis has gone their entire kind of franchise history without winning the Stanley Cup. They were they contended in the first three Stanley Cups that they were eligible for back in the early seventies when they were an expansion team, um, but have not and were beat by Boston back then. Um, so it's kind of nice for them to kind of you know forty years later or whatever get their revenge. Um, and also, it was just exciting to see their run, and uh, kind of as an illustration of just how random hockey, hockey is, can yep. be. Mm-hmm. They were in last place in January. So let me think, let me just last let's just figure this out in the, from the bottom. So they were in last place in yeah. their in their division or last last. I think place. they were last place in the entire league. So in some measure, they were the biggest long shot in the league. I just yeah, uh, I, I, I think just, I, I'm trying to think uh, two fifty to one. Two fifty. I was wondering. Yeah, two fifty to one. Two hundred fifty to one. You could have gotten in early January for them winning the Stanley Cup. Now let me just put that in in a little bit of perspective. Odds are always high in the sense that they overestimate probabilities yes. because uh, odds makers don't want to lose money. So two fifty to one is probably closer to five hundred or a thousand to one in probability. Yeah. So probably the closest analog that actually kind of you know ha- happened was that Le- Leicester City or whatever City, a couple, uh, City a couple of years ago. Yeah. They were the five thousand to one. Were they really? They were five thousand to one, and that was in the beginning. That was before the nah. season began, and and figured they were. And then okay, that's probably so. the, the smallest, uh, the best odds that you'd ever get. So I think the and in soccer, just this is data something I know about, and I'd like to contrast to the hockey, but but soccer, particularly English Premier League soccer, is so determined by payroll, which is unbounded. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, the Leicester City uh, thing is even more improbable because soccer. You know, I mean, it, it, it's it's. I think it's more predictable going in. I mean, what they did, where they their a priori, um, you know, contention for the Champions League ended up being way off. I think happens less often. This is more, you know, I mean, what the Blues specifically have done is very impressive, but I think it's also a statement on just how random, random. hockey is. And, and and specifically, you know, the playoffs are very random. I mean, the Blues still had to kind of obviously well, play just, very me, well me, to make it to the playoffs. Let me ask you that question. Yeah. So hockey is sort of somewhat notorious for inviting many, many teams to the playoffs. What yeah, actually is right. the fraction? No, and, and I mean, that that is certainly true. You do get quote-unquote more mediocre teams in the playoffs because half the teams, like basketball, half the teams go to the playoffs. Unlike basketball, those kind of, you know, uh, marginal teams that just squeak into the playoffs in hockey can actually make a run like the Blue Dizzy. In basketball, I mean, you never really see the eighth seeds or seventh no. seeds go anywhere, it's right? Almost, it's almost like the NCAA. Um, and, I, and I think part of that is the I – mean, I mean, I think there's a couple dynamics that we've talked about on the show before. I think the talent pool in hockey is more uniformly spread out. Even the best players in the league, the Connor McDavid's or the Sidney Crosby's, cannot kind of dominate games like LeBron James or right. Kevin Durant can. Um and so the talent pool is spread out a little bit more uniformly across teams. And the actual game itself is just more random because it's low-scoring events, low right? Poisson-like. So, like, that's the yeah, model that's that's used. right. And so all you need is really kind of a hot goaltender. I mean, I think Bennington was a really interesting, the goaltender for the Blues, who, I mean, you know, just based on Game 7 should have probably gotten the MVP for the for the finals. Um, but he was very up and down the whole tournament. I mean, like, you know, the... the um, the finals were, you know, either a blowout by Boston where Pennington was like pulled after a couple goals or he, you know, shut them out. So here's so let's just figure out how this is possible. So in in hockey, you can go from last to making the playoffs. Yeah. Unlike, say, baseball, Baltimore Orioles aren't going to make the playoffs. No, There's that's no right. chance of that, even uh-huh. if they did go 
thirty ten and five, yeah. which is the record that the Blues went subsequent to their bottom of the barrel, and that was enough to get him in the playoffs. And then, as you point out, playoffs are rather random. And yep. then you throw in the factor of the goalie hot being goalie. hot goalie. So actually, that's the random part of that's it. That's Which goalies? So get let me hot, ask you this: so, so in your experience following soccer and thinking about analytics of soccer, can you actually demonstrate that goalies are hot, or is this? Something that is that appears to us, a la the famous you know hot hand fallacy. Yeah, is it is it, is it a genuine hotness or is it or is it just look that way because they save a lot of goals or, and then sometimes they don't? Yeah, and I mean I I'm not quite. It's it's an interesting question how one would unpack that or or try and analyze that in hockey. I guess you would kind of. I mean I wish Eric was here so he could talk about momentum. Um, <laughs> well, we know what he has. You to know, say. and and maybe some statistics associated that does you know do, does a you know because I don't think it's it, it's rare in hockey that you get a goaltender that can kind of do that consistently year to year kind of right. turn it on for the playoffs. There are a couple Hall of Fame goaltenders that were famous for that, Mortan Brodeur being the most recent one that played for the Devils. Uh, Patrick Raw back in my day when I was really watching seriously, he always seemed, I mean, he was a great goaltender during the regular season, but he was lights out during the playoffs. And so doing that predictably for a single goaltender where you'd have enough signal across multiple yeah. seasons yeah. to kind of pull that out, I think that's rare. I think it's more that you you know you kind of you can't tell which goaltender is going to necessarily get hot going into the playoffs. And I probably over. Do you believe in it? I mean, do you believe that they are a different goalie when they're hot as opposed to unlucky? When yeah, not I think hot? there are. I think they kind okay. of eat enter some kind of you know. I, I think I, I physically obviously they're not particularly different, but I think there's maybe a mental kind of acuity or some kind of zone that they get in. And I mean, you know, I, this zone we kind of think probably exists in all sports. Yeah. It's just again statistically probably not detectable or prospectively you you can't predict it for any given player. Yeah, I mean, this is something that that is the the basic statistics conundrum about yeah. the hot hand is that everybody who plays sports or is involved deeply in the actual the playment playing of the sports on the on the on the field on the court and the on the the whatever the different terms we have yeah. the pitch in soccer yeah. would argue that of course there's hotness yeah. absolutely there are times when you are on and times you are not but when you stand back and look at it statistically for the most part yeah. just I looks mean, like ba- baseball too i mean this concept yep. of clutch hitting or the you know non clutch hitting in the playoffs we kind of I mean, I at least believe that it exists in the sense that there are players that get into a zone where they just kind of hit lights out. But, you know, with the rarity, I mean, you can maybe come up with a couple players. This guy, David Ortiz, for example. This guy, here he comes up with another Boston Red Sox. We we got to bring it in. We got to talk about David Ortiz. Uh, Well, he is in the news, but uh, not not a baseball way. But, you know, I mean, but even he, I don't think, you know... Probably he did not accumulate enough data even in the playoffs right. to kind of say that, oh, yes, yeah, statistically he was somehow significantly in the zone more in the playoffs versus not. All right, so let's turn our attention towards the other finals that concluded this mm-hmm. past week, which, is, yeah. of course, was the epic. Well, it wasn't epic, but it was, we were certainly talking about it oh, for a it long time. Her, it was a very entertaining final. Sa- yeah. Entertaining final. So the Toronto mm-hmm. Raptors defeated the the Warriors. Yeah. and uh, I think I lost about four over-unders in total on that I series. Well. I could not guess that at all and that is a tribute to the nba because you know i my my kind of calling card is always talking about nba like it's the most predictable thing ever and there it goes but listen what there are two factors here that made that victory um 
possible for Toronto. I mean, obviously, Kawhi Leonard played spectacularly. Yeah, and injuries. But, but there were injuries to Durant and injuries to Clay Thomas. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the Warriors are a team built on Steph Curry, Thomas, uh, Thompson, sorry, Thompson, and um, and uh, Kevin Durant. Plus, you still have Iguodala, right? You have... Oh, uh, they've got a very, very D- deep Draymond Green. Yeah. And this is a ridiculous team, but you take away two of their top three, and they're not nearly as dominant. And that, of course, happened. But, that, speaking of hotness, uh, so we got this uh, this article, um, which which just ranks the, the players um, in the NBA Finals who had opportunities to take go-ahead shots in the last 24 seconds. And right at the bottom of the list is Steph Curry, who is 0 for 9. Wow. 0 yeah. for 9. So speaking of hotness and its counterpart, coldness, it does look rather... Yeah. So, so I, I think it was basically, it was a perfect storm for... I, I, this is what we needed for this dominant, dynastic team of Golden State to finally lose, is you needed to knock out two of their top three players and have the other one be kind of cool. Right, and cold. But I will say that this is, again, in one of the difficulties of basketball, is that Steph is undoubtedly probably trying to take a three. They mm-hmm. have a lower success rate to start with. Yeah. Third, he's probably the hardest. I mean, in some level, and this, we saw this with Toronto, which is a yeah. spectacularly defensive team. It's he's when you when you know someone is going to shoot a three. It yeah. turns, this is something that you actually can make it hard to do um, when and then when there's no time left and there's no opportunity to sort of move the ball around and he's your go-to guy. So it's it's. Well, and, I, I saw an interesting. Onion, I think it was on the Onion. So it's it's a joke article, <laughs> but like it, it made me actually think: Why couldn't like as just an offensive formation? Stay, the, Steph Curry plants at the three-point line with the ball. And all the other four Golden State players like link arms around him just right. so that he gets an open shot, and they could just do that every time. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, Why? Well, would that work? Would that work? Uh, Probably not. They they dream up some kind of way around it, but like, right. you, wouldn't that be Come kind around of the fun? Back. They just sort of like <laughs> form this cordon around Steph Curry, and he just launches three pointers time after time I after mean, time. It is, it is, I mean, it try is, it out next regular season. I mean, let's agree. <laughs> The regular season, they're not gonna that you know try it out one time. <laughs> you know, they're actually Let's rules, experiment. There are rules in the rule book that say things. Yeah, like well, you ask Neil why that can't happen. Yeah. actually, he'd, he'd know. <laughs> one of the one of the rules in the, in the baseball rule book is you, the runner can't run backwards because it will make a travesty of the game. Well, right, and this would definitely make a travesty <laughs> of the travesty game. If, the if game. it wasn't illegal in basketball, <laughs> they'd probably make it illegal pretty quick. But I mean, I'd love to see him try it. I mean, basketball has really become a, a, a amazingly a very different game the way it's played today than it was played twenty five years ago. Yeah. It's much more open. Three pointers are, and this is what you're describing is sort of the we would, we would take it to the extreme. <laughs> the extreme, yeah. but but uh, there is a sense that g- games shouldn't change ridiculously, and you shouldn't do things to really hurt the fundamental character of the game. So, speaking of the travesty rule in baseball, what, what, an oddity happened mm-hmm. in baseball this last week, which is which is the first time, certainly in my lifetime, that I, maybe ever where someone intentionally balked. Yeah, and the reason, the argument for intentionally balking, and this is this is well, the part, we should set this whole thing up, right? So, so there's a runner on second. And runner the, on second. Ninth uh, inning. Ninth inning. Uh, I, Dodgers, the Dodgers, Dodgers are up by two. Up by they two. Uh, Canley Jansen's on the mound trying to close it out. Right. Um, and there's a man on second. And he intentionally boxed the man over to third uh, because he suspected that the uh, runner on second was stealing signs. Which is which is really the idea that they're stealing signs is is, is interesting. And I, yeah. wonder, I wonder if there's any data that suggests that signs can, uh, signs can actually be stolen to people. Uh, we have people, video. I mean, well, I, mean, do I, I, I don't know, again, if there's been any statistical analysis. I mean, 
I feel like it's a, it's an annual thing that some team complains right, right. about another team stealing signs yeah. and you know usually there's all the kinds Astros. of stuff. Yeah, well, usually usually the Astros. Yes, that's right. The yeah. Yankees, Red Sox always go back yeah. and forth on this too. Just right. I, I mean, I don't know how serious they are about it. Um, but it does. It's at least an enterprise that uh, a lot of players believe exists. So fi- fi- finish the situations. We yeah. have a runner on second, and the the Dodgers are up by two. And this is actually crucial. It's the ninth yeah. inning because the pl- the win probability is identical whether there's a runner on second or a runner on third. Yeah. So um, and it makes sense, right? I mean, they t- need two runs. There's two outs, I think. Two, two outs. Or, yeah, yep, two yep. outs. Um, they need two runs to score anyway to to to, lo- to have the game tied. So yeah, it makes sense. The win ex- uh, expectancy wouldn't change. And so yeah, so he intentionally balked. He intentionally moved the runner over to third, so, just um, so that he couldn't st- he couldn't just so that the, uh, take signal. The, yeah, and and he you know I think he struck out the next guy and the game is over. Yeah. Um. So, but I, it is it's super fascinating, and I'd love to see sort of more kind of weird strategy elements right. like that. So the cool thing in the rule book is that first of all you can't. Turn down a balk. Yeah. If it happens, you have to take it. And the second thing is you can't run backwards. And the rule, the reason given why you can't run backwards is it would make a travesty of the game. To it would do be that. disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> You'd get a player like Manny Ramirez who wasn't paying attention, just run backwards into his own player. I mean, I, under, I, I understand the players can only run forwards. Can they refuse to run? Of course they can, right? They can refuse to run, sure, yeah. they'd be out, right? But uh, They can't refuse to uh, they can't, they refuse can't refuse to, to advance on a balk. Right, and if he walks backwards off the base, he's automatically out. So that's, what if that's he it. turned around and moonwalked? <laughs> he moonwalked between second and third. He's technically walking backwards, but he is advancing. And uh, Shane is, uh, is, is aspiring See, this is, to write for the I don't the know onion. why we don't experiment more. <laughs> right. we, well, I'm sure we don't. That would I be pretty lit. No, I didn't mean to, to hijack our conversation to baseball this early, as you know, you know Know that's always my my uh, general pattern of of hosting and guesting is to steer yeah. us this way. We, we we need to go back to to uh, to the to the NBA finals. Although I will say, well, I want to. I mean, we should talk a little bit more about the NBA finals. I also want to talk about just how much the world of basketball has changed since the NBA finals. Well, right? absolutely, because this is almost like an explosion. So let's let's. I have one 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 last topic to about the NBA finals. I think that we yeah. have some expertise on, which is the concept that there was a big gap between what the public was believing. And and what the models were saying. Mm. So the the public, particularly the beginning of the series, when it was expected that Durant and would come back. And I can represent back. the public on right. this one because I basically, I think, was with the public. Yeah. That I sort of saw, despite everything going on, I've been holding to this line that a Golden State victory was essentially inevitable. Um, you were. You and, were. you know, I I, I I bet on our over-unders with my heart and lost poorly. <laughs> we, um, we, we did, but I think, so, so the, it's not that the Toronto, so other than the, the 538 model definitely put Toronto ahead, but they were factoring in, and, and at, uh, at, at 9 o'clock we're actually going to have Neil Payne, and I, I think Neil Payne is one of the principal designers and um, fitters of the 538 model, and maybe he'll be able to tell us exactly what goes into it, but in his articles he has written extensively that the KD injury figures a lot into their model. Most of the pu- of the public didn't believe it as much, and the other thing is, is their models tended to... Um, take into account the fact that the Warriors were not a dominant team during the regular season. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because models tend to do that. They tend to be very sober about those differences between game to game variation. I mean, I feel like the 538 model is somewhat unique as a predictive model in the sense that I think it's one of the few that actually kind of changes its parameters for the playoffs versus the regular it season. Does, but they do have, they do at least acknowledge that the regular season in basketball is pretty distinct from the but playoffs. think about think about what the public does. 
Oh, the public doesn't do that necessarily. The public, I mean, just, public probably just a lot, probably looks at last year's playoffs. Well, that's, that's you know, right. and just sort of says, well, okay, basically the same team that dominated last year will probably do so again this but year. But the difference between the model and the public this year is not that the models were saying that Toronto was going to win this in overwhelming fashion by any measure. It was essentially calling the playoffs, the finals, a toss-up. The, it was the public that was overwhelmingly in favor of the Warriors, and that created the gap. Mm-hmm. So it's not so when the Warriors lost, I didn't go, oh boy, this is impossible, because the probabilities in my were by the models were about fifty percent, and fifty percent events happen. Well. About half the time, and in particular, we did. We, we can even point to the calamity that caused it to happen. KD being obviously, yeah, uh, being completely tearing his Achilles. So well, I, I, I forget now Clay the Thompson. odds. The odds. Um, I assume that the odds that put him one. in fifty fifty were post KD getting uh, Durant getting injured, uh, but post- not, but not. Because uh, Clay Thompson wasn't injured till the no, finals, no, no, no. right? So, so the, the two to one advantage was put out before the finals began. But be, but, but after Durant was injured. Sure. Durant, but, Durant was injured a couple of years yeah, yeah, yeah. before. So KD was injured, but it was expected that it was it was it was thought that he might come back yep. at some point during the oh. during the series, which he did, of course, to disastrous like quarter, effect, yeah. right? Um, but obviously, Clay Thompson wasn't factored into that at all. No, I'm not talking about the changing odds that as the as the series evolved. I'm talking about the opening odds. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we remarked here is that this is one of the, it was one of the largest gaps between the public odds and the statistical odds. And I'm not saying that the, the, the statisticians were predicting Toronto to win, although obviously some of them were, but the basic statistical model thought it was quite agnostic on the outcome. The public was quite certain it would be yeah. the Warriors, c- creating a very big gap, the kind, of, the kind of gap that we saw with Alabama-Clemson, again, driven by the, by, the, by the public. And it's actually, in some measure, similar to what we saw a couple years ago, which was that the Warriors were heavily favored by the statistical models, yeah. but the public loved LeBron and the well, Cavaliers I mean, so much I, that they were willing to bet it up. I guess this is a more general question. Does this happen in a lot of... Does this misalignment of the odds and public perception happen a lot when you have these kind of dominant dynastic teams, you know, across sports? Is it somewhat unique to basketball? I mean, you know, I can't remember what the the odds uh, for uh, Patriots Rams were, for example, minus two point five. So, I remember this. I was yeah. working on this. So the Patriots were not even a field goal. Advantage, right? So, so that's an example. I mean, you you'd kind of think, given you know the prior history, the previous years, and stuff like that, that the Patriots also be he- more heavily kind of but favored by to, the public. Yeah, but people want to bet against the Patriots. Well, yeah, you know I guess about maybe that. Maybe, that uh, maybe that's kind of a special <laughs> one. I don't know, but I mean, you know, or or back. I, I mean, you'd have to go back to. I mean, we haven't had really a dynasty in baseball of, of this ilk since the early like late nineties, right? So you'd have to kind of go back to yeah. you know two thousand and one, where the were the Yankees more heavily favored by the public than they were by the kind of well, right. by the by the whatever computer models existed at the day? You know, it's interesting because I think in many ways we probably should get a a, a, a Vegas sharp, maybe we can get yeah. Rufus Peabody to come on our show and talk like, about is that is that kind of like a, a known gambling arbitrage that the public tends to be kind of you know a little bit 
disproportionately favor kind of these like dominant dynastic teams. I don't you know, know what I'm. I'm curious to know. I mean, like we could take it for example. People do love favorites, and uh, Tiger Woods. They love to bet on Tiger Woods, even though he's he's a long shot. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's probably yeah. our, we have two more. There's a there's a couple of uh, that uh, major events going on that we ha- haven't had a chance to talk about. So yeah. so we're going to spend plenty of time talking about basketball at the top of the hour when Neil Payne comes on. Um, so let's put that aside for a moment and let's talk about the PGA, the uh, the so U.S. Open, the, the the U.S. Open. So yeah. the so this was an early U.S. Open, and we talked about it. The, the classic thing from from the betting standpoint is how many top golfers do you have to sort of list off before you get about fifty percent of the probability. Yeah, and uh, the long running discussion we have is that the answer is a lot because yeah. because golf is is essentially long shotty for even the most talented and no and and I, and I think it's interesting because I, I mean you know we kind of grew up acknowledging this you know and 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 everything but I feel like Tiger Woods really kind of. He messed with my. Uh, he he miscalibrated me yeah, for my, right. for the rest of my life as regards to golf because there was a period when it seemed like Tiger Woods was just winning like every tournament or right. like every other tournament and if he wasn't winning it he was top five and people didn't you know at the time it was very impressive and people kind of acknowledged it was impressive but I I think it kind of miscalibrated me that I don't I I, I tend to underfavor the field against whoever the top golfer is because of Tiger Woods' dominance when he was the top golfer. And that, and he dominated in a way that no top golfer ever had or perhaps ever will. And I think that's really kind of like – I tend to kind of have this – and I think the public in general has this overbetting on the kind of favorites going into – you know, the top five yeah. favorites going into golf tournaments. And I think it's in part because of what Tiger Woods did for at the peak of his career. And I think it's interesting because I think if you talk to uh, – I think I think this is an, a great place for professional gamblers because mm-hmm. I think they aren't biased yeah. by this and they can find um, actually good bets. So the the winner of the U.S. Open was Gary Woodland. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone like me who doesn't really follow golf, I would ask – I would think, well, who is this guy? And, yeah, and, I mean, yeah, I, uh, I, mean, I kind it, of right? – I, I knew the name, but, you know – I I mean, he certainly would, you know, in, in this kind of top guys versus the field going into the U.S. Open, he was part of the field, you know, he, no doubt about it. But here's a couple of interesting uh, observations. He's like top 50, but not top 10, So this right? guy was, was recruited to play basketball and was a basketball player in college. Once he realized that he just isn't a basketball player at a professional quality. Yeah. And in fact, the, the, he had the, to fall back on professional yeah, golf. So, so he Rough actually life, had, man. He had to, he had to guard uh, Kurt Kirk Kirk Heinrich in in a, in a basketball game in college and who was a, who was eventual first round no, draft pick how'd that go? and he's like no this is not <laughs> this is ridiculous but it does harken back to our a guest from a couple shows ago David Epstein he talked about his book the range and the point that the book range makes is that playing multiple sports is the is a terrific avenue to become successful yeah. in one and you have to be you play many and you find the one that you're that really is most suited to you so so basically woodland realizes that you know basketball which is where he, he's a big guy right yeah. so and he's powerful and clearly that's important um you know essentially cut his chops uh, as an athlete in basketball moved over to um, to golf, which is actually completely contrasted by the Tiger Woods style, which is play one thing, one thing only, never anything else. Start at age one, and then and can be completely focused. The the book point of yeah. range is that the the multiple yeah, sport no, ideas. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's I just think it's it's really impressive when 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 athletes can kind of do that, can move between sports at that kind of a right. level. And, and if ma- I had to pick a professional sport to be you know good at, it would definitely be golf. 
You can play for like forever, thirty years. There's <laughs> nobody hitting no, you. No risk of injury. Oh, right. Well, I mean, there's injury, but it's like you know, it's only yeah, kind of self-involved yeah, yeah, and self- everything. I mean, I guess yeah. the mental as pressure aspect of it is actually huge. Is, is pretty substantial. So maybe I should reconsider. But I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you're golfing. Looks like a blast. Looks man. like a blast. Just yeah. and, and Matty Dats, our producer, reminds us that Brooks Kepka was a hockey player. And so he again embodies that, yeah. that the attribute of playing multiple sports. Brooks is actually and it's so funny because if if he had somehow pulled off that comeback and he almost almost did, did almost did. we'd have the entirely opposite narrative about this tournament, right? Because we kept talking about like, oh, the you always got to go with the field, blah blah. blah. <laughs> Whereas Brooks Kepka, he was the, he was the, like the number one pick going That's in, right. right? He certainly was. Yeah. So that was the. I don't. Did you catch any of the actual golf? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was. Uh, I mean, it was. Uh, there's a lot of really kind of cool uh, play going on and everything. I thought it was interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily have much insight to offer on on the kind of battle on Sunday or whatever, uh, um, other than what we've already discussed. But no, I, it was it was a great tournament. It makes me excited for the British Open, which is coming up. Yeah, when's the, when's the British Open? A couple weeks. A couple from weeks. Now. Uh, Three weeks, four three weeks. weeks. Yeah. So, so the final um, championship, which is actually ongoing, hasn't been settled, is the women's. Um, World Cup, yeah. which is going on. Have you caught any of that? The, the U.S. team is... Well, I, I caught that Thailand game. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, actually, well, maybe we'll have a chance I've had to... a big discussion about that Thailand so game So, just to remind our listeners, yeah. 13 to nothing 13 was the, to nothing. the victory. And the real question is, what does that mean? Um, obviously, I've Thailand I've had discussions is... about people who claim they weren't running up the score, which I well, think is crazy. That's like five games worth of goals. Of course they were running up the score. Is right? there anything wrong with that? I mean... Well, no. I, I mean, so... No, I mean, I, I guess I balked at, at, at this at this claim that somehow this did not represent running up the score. I mean, I personally believe that if you want to stop a team from running up the score, you just stop them from scoring. I mean, like, you know, I, I That's think right. and, teams and, have a right and, to and run up the score. I'm not also, really wait, into the – I don't really care about that kind of but, sportsman. I, I don't, but goal differential in soccer matters? Isn't it something that is used to figure I out mean, if you I mean, theoretically, I think goal differential is one of the tiebreakers yes. coming out of the group stage at the World Cup. But that's I mean, not but it's be a America. Factor. Right. I mean, and they probably, I think they're probably going to get through the group stage right, right. anyway, and they probably, even if they wanted a, a, a fairly advantageous goal differential, I think they could have probably stopped at seven or eight. <laughs> like, I don't think there's any strategic reason to go like to, to score thirteen. Well, goals. I mean, one of the things about athletes, and I think to their credit, is it's very hard for them to not play. Well, no, that's right, and well, I think that's and, really you know, what it co- what comes to is running up the score. What it usually is is just that you know soccer athletes don't know how to turn off. Oh, you got to give me an open lane. I'm just going to stop running said, or something like that. It would actually right. you know fundamentally change how they're playing. In order to not run up the score in this particular case, but I think the the interesting statistical question, which is is it's clearly an observation here, is that there's an enormous gap between yeah. the teams at the top and the teams at the bottom, and and I don't even think Thailand is the worst team, and they might even be even not even close to the worst team. No, that's right, and so, I mean, it, it, and it could just be that you know, especially in, in, on the women's side of things in the World Cup. I, I mean, even in the men's World Cup, you do. There, there's enough countries that are really good at it. By the time you kind of get to the finals, that like thir- you know the actual what we call the World right. Cup, the 32 teams there are all they're all t- they're all decent, pretty good. You that's know, right. I mean they're that's all right. good. And you, can I, ex- and it- you can expect a good hard fought game at any level. That's exactly right. All right, so that completes our first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We will be coming back with an interview with Matt Manicharian. Trains don't run no more in Boston. Well, 
shame the trains don't run no more in Boston. That's just a reflection on the fact that the uh, Bruins don't poke got the uh, Boston Championship we are poking beast the Boston here. Braves, I, the Boston I don't think Bruins. you'll like what will happen uh, in NFL season. <laughs> NFL season. Well, right now we're in the midst of the MLB season, and we did we do point out that they are in third place. Oh yeah, Sox. no, that, this it's not going as but well. But they season. are dangerous, and that is one of the divisions no, I, I, which fact, is tight. I'll just sort of say that, like getting, uh, we got, I got an email from Eric Bradlow, uh, worried about the Red Sox coming back and the Yankees. How have we gotten to this point? Well, after we're terrified, of, years right, right, right. That Yankees fans are terrified of the Red it's, Sox. It's, it's like, a beautiful thing. It's, it's like, a beautiful thing. It's like it's like uh, Patriots fans in their fear of the Giants. Mm. Speaking of football, yes. speaking of football, we do have a guest right now. A, we have Matt Manicharian. Matt Manicharian is a director of football and research at Sports Info Solution. Formerly, this was uh, the the outfit that was we know it as Baseball Info solutions they've clearly branched out um he's also an adjunct professor at the nyu um and a former scout for the saints and browns and you can hear matt on his podcast with aaron schatz called off the charts football podcast and you can follow him at twitter at matt mamo matt welcome to wharton moneyball Hey guys, thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, that's terrific! Uh, you're getting the status, the statistician side. Uh, uh, if we are missing today, Cade and Eric, but uh, we're ap- absolutely delighted to to, uh, to hear from you about your work with Sports Info Solutions. In fact, I wanted to tell a quick story. This, you guys are formerly Baseball Info Solutions, right? Yep. And when did you go Sports Info Solutions? When did it be- that was 2015. We were originally founded in 02. We branched out into football in 2015. So I'll tell you a quick, our knowledge of baseball info solutions is actually very important because uh, our first, more my first foray into writing analytical papers about uh, about sports involved fielding data that we, we acquired from, from baseball info solutions. And before we bought it from baseball info solutions, we wanted to look at the different providers. And we actually had a party at Shane's house. Yeah, I host a, I host <laughs> a, a data party where we watched a specific uh, f- uh, baseball game. I think it was Yankees, Red Sox. We actually, we actually queued up about three or four different yeah, games. And, and we compared about three three different data providers in terms of, you know, kind of what we saw was the most accurate just from watching the games. And, I mean, Baseball Info Solutions was, was the top shoulders. Of, but you have to remember, harken, harken back back into the mid-aughts or 2007, 2008, whenever this was, there was no tracking. There was It was all essentially a, a human being just putting dots on a field. That was the way it used to be. And so I guess things are rather different now. Maybe you can tell us about how data collection is across the sports and, and what do you have. So let's start. Let's, let's actually start with baseball. You you still do baseball at, at Sports Info Solutions? Yep, we still definitely uh, work on baseball. That's that's a lot of the core business. I spend less of my time on baseball, of course. I'm I'm uh, more working with the football stuff. But we work with almost every major league team still, and we still have a robust human collection data collection that goes on, and we use that in conjunction with the different newer sorts of, of data sets that we can work with these days. We still put a huge premium, and I appreciate you guys saying and bringing that up. The accuracy—that's um, the thing that we put a premium premium on above anything else. And if you think about it, you know, even Statcast, which has been around for a few years now, there's still lots of issues with the Statcast data. You know, humans aren't perfect, but these machines haven't been perfected yet either. Um, and so, what ends up happening is it makes a really nice complementary piece having the SIS data along with, for example, the Statcast data, the next gen data. Which depends what sport you're talking about. Because sometimes the data covers just different things that one data set is, is explicitly not considering the other data set. 
And sometimes, you know, if you have an issue with one data set or the other, you can fill in the blanks really reliably. Um, and, and so it, it ends up being a really nice tool to work with. And then, of course, the other thing you can do, and a big reason why we're still around and thriving these days on the baseball side is we collect data in lots of different levels, um, you know, from, from college baseball to Japanese, the NPB. And with that, we created what we call synthetic stat cast. So in any of these different leagues, based on what we collect there and what we know about StatCast data and how those, those models relate, we kind of can create synthetic StatCast numbers in, in these places where it doesn't necessarily exist or it isn't available outside of whoever has access to, you know, the TrackMan data or whatever. Wait, you have, so you have video for that? Is that how you get it? Or is it from, from what? Yep, so, yep we're, working, we're working off of video. Okay. Um, we and work I th- off video. Yeah, I think that quality control aspect is really uh, very important. As you sort of said, I mean, Statcast is 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 a pretty comprehensive database now for kind of what's going on in the field of playing baseball. But there are a lot of issues, random data collection issues, or, or whatever oh that don't that things that don't just don't pass the smell test. And you need you need human kind of quality control and kind of annotation and kind of supplementation to kind of you know to 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 get that out. And I kind of wonder as we kind of as you guys have moved into football now and I assume you're kind of working a lot with with some of the more kind of advanced tracking technologies in football. Are you sort of seeing the same thing that, you know, the tracking technologies that are kind of currently ascendant I guess in football, are they are there a lot of kind of quality control issues with those? Yep, there are definitely issues um, wherever you go. You know, in baseball, it'll be the pop-up that never seems to come down or, you know, the, the third baseman that decided to switch identities with the umpire um, are, are common ones that'll come up. And, uh, you know, in football, it's the same thing. You'll have wide receivers teleport to different parts of the field. Um, you'll have the guy that was, was blocking somebody. Um, some you'll, you'll see confusion. Uh, you know, it, in some a sport like basketball, at least you're played indoors in in these arenas that are the same everywhere else. In football, the outdoor aspect is really tough, baseball too. And then in baseball, you also have to deal with different fields everywhere, so that calibration can be tough. Um, definitely data issues. It gets better every year, but there's, there's still, when you're competing on the level that these teams are competing on, you want to be dealing with the cleanest data and, and have to have that from day one, not have to worry about it. So that's a lot of time where we come in as far as that stuff goes. So, so one of the, so you talk extensively about data quality and, and, and data collection. And these are very important. I just, from our side of things, we tried to do, uh, I had a bunch of students working on StatCast data, the publicly available side of it. And we spent months just cleaning it because there's so many imputed values and values that aren't on the field. And there's, as you point out, teleporting and, and that, and, and of course, the, the, the home plate seems to be be different in every field it's not always at zero zero it sort of moves around and the foul lines are are different and it just became a, a really big chore and so i'm sure your company kind of helps that helps the team kind of work through those problems but let's let's go you must also add a, an analytics piece is that is that something that you also do as well as dealing with the data but also turn the data into information yep um that's that's the big thing we do so our functions we're, we're collecting the data we're cleaning up the data and we're analyzing the data but we're really either we do two things. We provide the raw data to the teams so that they can do whatever they want with it. A growing number of baseball teams just want the data, and they say, "See you later. We're gonna we're gonna do our own thing with it." Uh, but especially on the football side now, and still a number of baseball teams, and uh, we, you know we deal with different clients on different levels. There are a lot of people that are really interested in, a, in of course, getting kind of what's the best and brightest stuff that you guys are working on right now. Defensive run saved was certainly our calling card in baseball for a long time. Um, we have a statistic called total points in football now 
that we're really, really excited about. It is a division of credit metric based on expected points added and dividing up based on the different charting data that we collect amongst the 22 guys on the field, the responsibility for the play. So it's a big swing. It's not perfect yet. Um, but this is the sort of work that, that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. So that's really interesting because we have uh, the d- defensive run saves is something that's very important to yeah. us. If you think about it, because we have our own metric, SAFE, which yeah. we created years ago, which really never got got traction because it was so darn hard to, to compute. Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it also, I, I think it was it was sort of, uh, I'll, I'll say this, you know, uh, with a little bit of smirk. I think it was a little bit ahead of its time. It was a very complicated kind of logistic regression model that took into account the position of the fielders and where the ball was going and, and used the most advanced data at the time. Baseball and Solutions provided that. Um, but I think now if we, if we could sort of plug in kind of the better kind of tracking data oh that God. is out there now, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I – th- I think our methodology was, was – probably the the type of thing that you would want to do it just we, we were lacking that high resolution so, data so, that's currently available so matt let me ask you about uh defensive run safes are you still using sort of the uzr type zone metrics or are you doing things with the Statcast data so we have two different versions of defensive run save that live today uh in the public sphere um that's what we commonly refer to as defensive run save that's what you'll find on fan graphs um and that's relying on on kind of the the old school version of defensive run save based on just our tracking data, not incorporating StatCast stuff. We still work on improving that all the time, but as you guys bring up, it's of course not not as robust as what you can do with the StatCast data. So we have something that we call StatCast defensive run save, or SDRS, and that's something that we reserve for our team clients. Uh And this is kind of our our state-of-the-art metric that involves the best of what StatCast has to offer combined with the best of what we have to offer uh, to, to really try to you know get everything as as detailed as possible. So tell us about total points on football and, and what's how is this going to be the the latest and greatest innovation? So total points is kind of a simple concept at its core. It's it's everybody wants a war for football. Everybody wants yeah. to do this, and football just since the beginning of time we haven't had very good data sets to work with. Um, and now that those data sets are getting better, we have the opportunity to start to, to understand this stuff. So the first step we did is we took everything and we put it into the expected points added context. So if if you look at yards, touchdowns, interceptions, these are all different results that can happen on football plays. If they happen on different parts of the field, on different down-distance situations, they have different implicit values of, of what they are. So um, a good example is, you know, if you gain three yards on third and one versus if you gain three yards on third and four, that that's obviously a different play in terms of how you're impacting your point expectancy on that drive and your eventual chance of winning the game. So we throw everything into this context of expected points added. So on each play, how many points did that play generate? Theoretical points did that play generate? And then from there, we're dividing that up. And so one example of how this works, and it's very similar to defensive run saved, is say we're running an outside outside zone run off right tackle and uh, the right tackle blows a block on that play. There is an, an average value for, for what that means, the, the blown block, what that means on a general play. So we basically figure out where the values are for each of these events that can happen on a play and how they impact different sorts of plays differently. And from there, we can attribute the value that's being gained and lost on a play to each of the players. So if you have you know a bubble screen to the wide receiver – um, here we're in Philadelphia. So hmm. uh, say you have uh, Carson Wentz, and uh, he just throws a, a bubble screen to Nelson Aguilar. 
Aguilar breaks two tackles and runs 50 yards for a touchdown, he's going to get almost all of the expected point value for that play. He, you know, he alone would be responsible for about four expected points added on that play. Meanwhile, if Wentz drops back, he's pressured immediately. He breaks two tackles in the backfield, rolls out, sprints to the sideline, and makes a spot-on pass to Aguilar in the end zone. That play is going to look really different. In fact, Wentz is going to get credited for more than four expected points added on that play because he's so responsible for what went on. And actually, he made up for value that was lost by his offensive linemen as well. So, so, so if you track the the the, the uh, expected points almost from the beginning of the play, it goes from say maybe neutral down to negative as as the, as is not because the night linemen haven't done their job yet. So he can climb back and actually even get potentially more than seven points on a play. Is that possible? Right. No, that, that's not possible. Yes. You can well, okay. <laughs> the, the player can get more more than four expected points as a team. It's going to be very close to the total number of expected points that were gained and lost on the play. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it, I guess you can. But it's possible to go negative because if you're, let's say, you're in midfield, and then you, and then your linemen, your everything just falls apart, and you're now at thirty in your own territory. Now you're actually giving points to the other team, and then if you can come back from that, you, and then actually score, you actually could get more, potentially more than seven if you think of field position as a, as a, as part of the the expectation. Right, absolutely. And if you look at any expected points added stuff, anytime you see a, a pick six go down. You see crazy swings in the expected points added. Or if you see somebody come back from they had 4th and 25 and, you know, they, they started doing X, Y, and Z, uh, you see crazy things. And then when you put it into the context of total points, the interrelation between teammates, you know, it's very common that you have a good play, but all 11 guys didn't do something good on that play. So it can add up in funny ways, yeah. So let me ask about the mechanics of this. So are you using... What are the underlying data streams that are using to create this total points? Are you using just the video and the people grading it? Everybody play sort of the, the fo- pro football focus idea of grading every player. Are you using the next generation stats if that's available? I don't which know. Which is tracking? Which is tracking? What What are you using as your uh, fundamental data streams? So this is based on on our in house data collection. So what we do is is similar but different from pro football focus from a from a data collection standpoint. We don't do any grading of the players. We're very focused on. You know, in 2002, Baseball Info Solutions, founded by John Dewan and Bill James, very concerned with kind of looking at this in terms of what is the value of each event that's going on, as opposed to assigning a value to each event and then kind of adding that up at the end of the game. We kind of just try to identify the events and find out how impactful each of these events is, given the situation that it's occurring in. Um, and that can get less or more specific, depending on the sample size, the context, et cetera. And then um, we're, we're using that, um, that data to kind of triangulate this stuff out. We're not concerned with, with the next-gen stuff here. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't based on tracking data yet. Um, there might be future versions of this that incorporate kind of hybrid models and, and, and that sort of thing. But right now we're looking at, based on, based on our internal data collection, uh, what goes on with all 22 guys on every play. Right. We're collecting information on everybody there. Um, it's a very thorough data collection operation. You know, we have at least four guys watch every play of every game. Right. That's before you even get to any of the data, the the auditing layers and things like that. And uh, one kind of additional complication that obviously football presents over baseball is this concept of scheme, right? And and, and the fact that there are kind of particular schemes. Do you kind of is is that are you kind of for you know as part of your data collection or, or analysis process? Are you kind of 
imputing scheme or do you have kind of an external kind of data source that tells you that you know what kind of the schemes are for every single play? So that's a big part of what our data collection is. Um, our video scouts are, are experts. They're former college players, uh, student managers, things like that, people trying to start their scouting careers. They really uh, have to know the game before they come in here. It's competitive to get the position. And then we spend a lot of time in August really training everybody up to make sure they understand our language for the way that we, you know, because you could call the same concept in football 20 different things, 100 different things sometimes. So we make sure everybody knows, you know, we call this ISO, not Bob, or whatever else the, the case may be. We all get on the same page there, and then we're charting all of that stuff. So our guys are not only kind of recording the stats that are going on on the plays, but they're also recording the scheme that's going on in the plays. They're very much quality control coaches doing the first layer of data analysis here. Do you provide, I'm going to ask a, a particular, do you provide your basic data sources to academics? Is that something we could get our, our hands on at some point? Or is it just uh, out, or is it out of our price range or only to professional teams? So we don't give the full data set. The, the full data set is, record, is reserved for professional teams, but we will be happy to share lots of data, especially with academics. We have special pricing for, for academics, so... We try to make sure that we can get this stuff into people's hands. You know, as a company, and something I feel strongly about, our mission is not just to provide this information to the teams, but also to the public at large and advance the conversation. And we always find that the more people are educated about this, the more people have an opportunity to tinker with it themselves and make improvements kind of in the public sphere. It ends up coming and working working out really well for everybody. Kind of more, more data, you know, leads to more fun and also more business for us. Yeah, and I mean, I, I just to echo that, it, it's kind of frustrating kind of from uh, from an academic uh, standpoint to sort of see that so much of the really cool data and, and, and cool analysis is, is essentially in private kind of proprietary yep. hands. It, it, it makes for a very inefficient kind of research market where there's a ton of half, like almost necessary redundancy where we constantly have to, you know, re- rediscover each other's, you know, analyses because we're not allowed to share it. Um, and also the kind of most fundamental, you know, the best data is not necessarily available in our to hands. us. So I want to ask you, uh, uh, as we get close to the end of, of our hour, I wanted to ask you uh, a very high level question. It's something that I'm asking my students in the next Next month, I'm going to be teaching a class to high school students called Wharton Moneyball Academy, and the uh, we want to go sport by sport and ask uh, and and ponder the question: What has been the the single biggest contribution of analytics to that sport? So, I'd like to hear what you have to say about football. What is the single biggest uh, transformative, if you will, if there has been analytical contribution to football? Well, I don't know if it's happened yet, but I would say what we're in the what we're in the the middle of right now is teams figuring out that passing is more efficient than rushing even if you consider the rush the risk that's involved with it we are entering an era where you can't just get away with three yards in a cloud of dust anymore because you're actively falling behind by taking that strategy Um, if you're not trying to score points other people will when they have the ball and it's just not going to work out well in a math equation for you Um, so i would say that's the biggest thing that we're going to see much more of you know more i mean passing has been becoming dominant already so you're is there a right balance that you're going to find or is there no balance That's is it all really passing interesting question we don't know what the right balance is but we know that we're not there we, or we i shouldn't say no we have a very good feeling and and based on the way we're understanding things right now we really think that we are not there because even when you incorporate uh, the value of turnovers and sacks and all the the risk aversion that nfl coaches are famous for the, the average value of a passing play is just more than the average value of a running play. 
And if you put your game together and you try to pass 60% of the time as opposed to 40% of the time, on average, you're going to end up with more points. Um, and this is kind of a, a really tough thing for football people to wrap their heads around. You know, we all grew up hearing if you run the ball 25 times, you're going to win the game um, and not understanding how that was outcome and not process and, and really not explaining what's going on there at all in any sort of a meaningful way. So I think, I think in football, that's going to be the one that's really the key at the center of it. But also, how about the role that analytics has to say in, in the continuation of the game? You know, football is in an existential crisis. It has been for probably 10 years where the game might not be around that much longer. We're seeing kids play the game less because of safety concerns. I love football. I don't know if I would let my kids play football based on the way the rules were maybe right, right. years ago and maybe that they are right now. So all of the different advancements that we can use, we can use data and science to understand how to make this game safer so that this existential crisis isn't around so much longer and we can actually continue to enjoy this game. Um, so that's one, too. That's a very interesting. And one of the, the uh, observations I w- I've been studying recently is where where football players are coming from. And they're increasingly coming from a smaller and smaller regions of the country. You'll find almost no professional athletes coming out of, say, New York, even though it's a very big state. They're coming from Texas. They're coming from Florida. Alabama. Uh, you know, and uh, exactly. It's from the South and, 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 and not from be- because of these fears. Listen, Matt, it's been terrific having you on. It was an extremely illuminating and interesting conversation. And maybe we'll be talking to you about collecting some data. So that concludes our first hour of Wharton Moneyball. This has been a great first hour. I'm your host, Dottie Weiner. I'm with Shane Jensen, and we will see you right after our break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Wharton Moneyball, Wednesday morning. In the studios on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk, I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm joined in the studio this morning with my colleague Shane Jensen, also of the Department of Statistics at the Wharton School, and we are in the studio ourselves without our other two co-hosts, Cade Massey and Eric Bradlow. But we are joined this morning on the phone with... Neil Payne, who's been back, who's been with us since the very beginning when he actually lived in Philadelphia. A little favorite background. guest, favorite guest. We'll we'll, uh, yeah. we'll just give you a little background on Neil to uh, before he gets to pipe in here. He's a senior sports writer for Five Thirty Eight, um, and he has written for ESPN, The Insider, New York Times, Sports Reference. Consulted with the NBA's Atlanta Hawks before he moved to Philadelphia, and now he has a, he's a co-host of the podcast um, Hot Take Town and uh, prolific writer for Five Thirty Eight and one of our. Absolute favorite guests. Welcome back to the show, Neil Payne. Hey, guys. Thanks. I feel like that introduction gets uh, longer and more effusive each time I'm on, so I, I'm, I'm uh, down for it. It's yeah, no. It's, yeah, uh, you know, whenever we're, we just need someone who can talk about everything, we have, yeah. we have Neil Payne. Um, even though, you Keep know... Keep writing, like, 20, like, amazing articles a week, <laughs> and week. We'll, we'll get more effusive for you. Although I will we'll point out, we, we mentioned this earlier, you know, it's, it, it's been a great thing for 538, and we as statisticians, to see scatter plots and regression lines and, and interesting histograms appearing on a daily basis as part of the the a uh, part of the the copy but i'm now seeing this in the wall street journal and the new york times as well this data journalism thing is percolating beyond the 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 yeah you guys are trendsetters i guess is what we're saying 
I'd like to think so. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I agree with you guys that I feel like I'm seeing more of that approach to journalism at different outlets and even sports journalism. Um, I think I was remarking to somebody the other day that nowadays it feels like if, if you're not sort of conversant in not just numbers, but like the advanced metrics, you're not writing about sports. You're not covering sports. You know, right. you have to, you, you don't see uh, sort of the old archetype of like the crusty old columnist that sort of writes about grit and heart and all those things that uh, they made fun of at firejoemorgan.com uh, decades ago. Uh, now it's, you know, everything sort of revolves around the advanced metrics or at least has a, has an understanding of it. And I really noticed that. I mean, you know, when we first started out at 538, there were still, you know, takes that people would have that you could sort of you know, uh, not make fun of, but sort of look at and be like, ah, you know, this is a little off base and here's why, here's the numbers behind it. Those are actually, surprisingly, it's like noticeable how, how fewer and further between those kinds of takes are nowadays because I feel like the whole uh, profession of sports writing has kind of been elevated and, and you have so many more people who are savvy about stats. It's been a great um, it's revolution, in my opinion. Maybe some Absolutely. of them will eventually become Hall of Fame voters. <laughs> well, eventually, hopefully. So, so even just take for example, I remember when we first started getting into baseball in the you know ten twelve years ago, OPS was a statistic that only the the cognoscenti, the sabermetricians, heard about, and that's the that's the standard stock statistic that's in the papers. It's in the I think it's on the back of baseball cards, it's on television. It's right. Know, it's in the in the, um, the lower third uh, when you're watching a game. There it is, right? OBP is is prom much is much more prominent. If I think it's probably more prominent than than batting average. Um, was in in its heyday, but let's let's go back. Let's let's go to basketball. You've written an enormous amount about basketball recently because obviously feels basketball, like it. It certainly <laughs> feels like it. I'm really excited for you to get back into baseball, as you know. Although you have been writing about baseball every now and then, and we're going to get to talk about that too. Um, but let's talk about basketball. I have actually two two directions I want to go to, but we'll, we'll start off with our model loves the Raptors. This was something <laughs> you were your model wasn't the only one that loved the Raptors, but you were probably the most prominent one, the one that I that I knew of most most. Uh, most uh, top of mind, I should say. And, and we talked about it because it was uh, this basis between the gap between the public, which generally, and Shane certainly included, yeah. um, had you know all their, their marbles, if you will, or, or chits put in the Warriors column. But the, the data was saying it, at best it was a toss-up. Your models actually thought it. I don't remember whether you actually had the, the, the Toronto to, to win before the playoffs. Toronto was like... 50, oh, before the playoffs. Certainly before Not, the, um, the, the finals, I think Toronto was like 54 four percent in the final mm -hmm. like, day of projection right which was a huge gap i mean because the, the vegas mm. was essentially two to one for the warriors so this is a right. big gap so i want to ask you kind of why you went that direction when most of the public was going the other direction well, I think a lot of it had to do with the injuries that the Warriors had, and uh, we knew about the Kevin Durant one. Uh, nobody could sort of look into a crystal ball and see Clay Thompson's multiple injuries, including the one that sort of knocked him out of the deciding game. Um, but we knew about, you know, how thin the Warriors were, were spread even going into the NBA Finals, and we sort of accounted for the idea that, you know, Kevin Durant, there was some possibility he would come back later in the series, uh, and it, this is why we wrote that if the Raptors didn't strike early, that things could go badly for them, that they needed to take advantage of the games early in the series uh, 
before Kevin Durant potentially came back. Uh, and so that sort of built into our model. And I think also, you know, our model liked the Raptors a lot more than maybe the general public did throughout the season, especially the configuration after they went out and they got Mark Gasol uh, and, and they sort of built their, their playoff version of the Raptors. Um, we, we had just a tremendous number of their rotation players, in addition to Kawhi Leonard, who we have rated highly. Uh, uh, the rest of that team also rates as basically a bunch of above-average players, according to our sort of updating player plus-minus metric that we track throughout the season. Uh, and uh, if you look at the Warriors, they're a lot uh, thinner of a team when they don't have Kevin Durant, right. which you know would be true of most teams. But uh, I think it was a little bit surprising how you know who they were throwing out on the court for this team that's like this dynasty. You know, you were seeing Quinn Cook and Alfonso McKinney take huge shots under pressure uh, and some of the guys that they had relied on in the past, uh, aside from the big shot that Andre Iguodala hit to win, I think it was game two, um, you know, he didn't necessarily have the biggest series. Sean Livingston struggled uh, and they were reduced to sort of relying on this cobbled together mix of top stars like Steph Curry and, and uh, Draymond Green, but then also some real some real characters down at the bottom of the bench. And so I think all of those things played into what our model was looking at because it's just all based on, you know, who's on the team, what's their current talent level based on their performance, and then who's injured. So your your model actually is a is a, the player model level and it builds up because there are essentially two approaches generally to modeling a team. One is to think of it at the team level. I know that's how you sort of look at the team and how they perform. And, and then you make adjustments for absences. Or you can kind of build it up from the players one by one and then sum them up, if you will. So your model is more of that latter, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, in the past, this is our first season actually using the model that's based entirely on the player ratings. And the player ratings change throughout the season, and so it's not entirely divorced from you know, what you're seeing on the court. But um, in the past, we looked at team results and we looked at, you know, wins and losses and tried to make adjustments for, you know, playoff games count more, playoff experience counts more. Um, but there were there have been these teams increasingly, I think, in the past few years that would sneak up on a system like that. I'm thinking of the Cavs multiple times sort of looked very listless at times during a regular season and then would come into the playoffs and LeBron would just start to kind of take over and they would play far above what you would project based on their regular season you know, results. And the Warriors have been doing that to a certain extent as well um, over the past couple seasons. And so we realized before this season we had to make some kind of change to be able to better predict the playoffs. Mm-hmm. The playoffs really, you know, if, if this has taught us anything, it's that the players and the teams treat the playoffs as the most important thing. And, and if you're enough of a super team, you can treat the regular season almost as like a glorified exhibition season. Uh, and so we were thinking, like, why are we even caring about some of these wins and losses and results from the regular season in terms of trying to figure out how hot or cold a team is going into the playoffs when the teams aren't taking these games seriously? Uh, they're not adding to the predictiveness. If anything, they're detracting. And we even found that if you took the preseason projection of a team based on its underlying talent, its, its players on its roster, and you didn't account for the regular season at all, you'd actually do a better job predicting the playoffs than you would if you sort of got into the nitty-gritty of like, okay, the Warriors won this game in February. Let, you know, their, their ELO rating improves by a certain number of points. That's where the NBA is right now, and so that's what motivated us to make this move toward a player-based system. So, Neil, uh, uh, this yeah. player-based system... Um, um, or, or kind of 
you know, building building your prediction model from the players up as opposed to the team down. I mean, I can see two two ways in which that kind of can improve upon a team down approach is is what you're talking about now that you can kind of do a better adjustment for how players kind of turn it you know how the players themselves change as you go from regular season to playoffs and also allows you to kind of I think compensate in your model for injuries better. Which oh, of those two things do you think is actually kind of more more important for your predictive improvements? Well, I think the injury factor is more important. For the players, you know, you get uh, the important things there are we we didn't have a factor for players that traditionally improve in the playoffs relative to, like, whatever we would expect their baseline rating to be. We included playoff stats in the rating, uh, but treated it just as it sort of, you know, another piece of data, um, another minute to add to their sample. So that's something we're actually thinking about adding next year is some kind of adjustment for players like Kawhi, like LeBron, that have a history of sort of turning it up a notch mm-hmm. in the playoffs. But one thing that we did take into account there is that the best players do tend to play a much larger share of the Right, so it's more of the configuration the of the team itself kind of cha- right. Like the players you're not, that you, you're not modeling a change in the players themselves, but just sort of how right. usage essentially. So, so, exactly. So, Neil, I want to ask you, getting down into a little bit into the weeds, but I think really important, when you model these individual players, and we just talked about analytics. What are you using? And basketball is one of these crazy games where you don't want to just look at points scored. You can't just add them up. Defense is hard to measure. Everything is very interrelated. There's these efficiency scores. You have your plus minuses that are hard to get right. What are you doing? What's the underlying? Uh, oh, if I looked under the hood there, what am I using to measure the player value? Well, so we have this system. Uh, I, I think you guys would probably remember Pakoda from baseball. Oh, we do. Um, that's Neil. That's uh, that's uh, that's Silver. That's Nate yeah, Silver's uh, innovation. That's silver fella. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, we um, when we got to ESPN, um, we worked on uh, basically a basketball version of that, and we called it Carmelo, uh, <laughs> which it, it's not actually named after Carmelo Anthony. It just happened to Elo be or a, for yeah. career arc uh, regression <laughs> model with lo- uh, estimate with local optimization. Just happened to spell out the name of Carmelo Anthony, who was on the Knicks at the time. Uh, So anyway, um, Carmelo basically looks at uh, any given player's most similar, comparable historical players, and then sort of tries to project how the current player's career will go going forward based on how similar players sort of developed over time. Uh, And that formed the baseline for our projection. And uh, we, we still use, you know, we use a mix of box Plus minus, which is uh, a basketball reference. It's a way of sort of estimating a player's effect by just looking at box score stats. Uh, and then we also use real plus minus, which is a number from ESPN that uh, it takes into account, you know, on versus off court performance by the team when the player's on the court after accounting for the teammates that the player plays with and the opponents that the player plays with and all of these things. So let me just uh, interrupt. So box plus minus essentially just calculates what the difference is when you're on and off the court based on what you can measure just through a box score. Well, pretty much, yeah, what we would expect it to be. So, you know, we know that, and you can learn some lessons from that, which are kind of interesting. Like, we know that assists are really valuable, and they kind of compound with other stats. So a player who's really versatile and has a lot of points, assists, and rebounds ends up having this sort of multiplicative effect on on a team, all things being equal. We found out, you know, steals are, are much more important than they're traditionally given credit for. They're highly predictive of a player's overall impact, not just on defense, but also 
also a little bit on offense as well. Uh, and uh, you, you can kind of learn some of these lessons from inferring, uh, basically run a regression between all the box score stats, pace adjusted and, and you know, per minute and so forth, uh, and these sort of raw plus minus numbers that we sort of know a player's, um, how, how a team performs with a player on the court versus off, you can kind of infer what we would expect a player with a given box score stat line to be worth in terms of improving or not improving the team. So that sort of forms the baseline of the box score component, and then we average it in together with this sort of pure box score, uh, pure on-off court uh, metric that just looks at lineups and says, you know, Kyle Lowry really has a huge effect on Toronto's um, uh, performance when he's in the game, even after you account for Kawhi, even mm-hmm. after you account for all, uh, all of the players that can kind of shuffle in and out. And so when you merge those two together, you kind of get a, at least a more complete picture of how a player is playing. And then we update that. You know, the Carmelo ones are based on the player's whole career to date and age-adjusted and kind of looking forward and then we have this like kind of bayesian approach in the middle of the season where you know you give a certain amount of weight to the prior and then you give a certain amount of weight to the minutes the player has played and his performance in the season and you come up with this kind of constantly refreshing estimate of how well a player is expected to perform going forward as of like today all right, so that's how it works, and and now you can probably roll it forward. So I'm going to actually, I'm actually going to change the topic slightly because there's been a huge, you know, information that's happened since the since the championships for next year, and I guess your model probably can give us a lot of insight into that. So tell us about the Lakers and the trade that they made for Anthony Davis and what they gave up and why and the fact that they're now basically the, yeah, favorites, the favorites for the championship and, and, next year. And tell us if you agree and, and what's the underlying analytics behind that or if there is any and uh, what do you think of this whole thing? Well, we yeah, we as soon as that happened, which I think was like 48 hours after the end of the NBA Finals. Uh, so you know that these things never stop. Right. Um, we ran so basically plugged in the the um, the current state of each of the the teams with the trades taken into account and, I don't know, waiving some of their free agents and kind of, you know, the rosters are very bare bones right now. The draft hasn't happened yet. Free agency hasn't happened yet. So keeping in mind all those caveats, we sort of plugged it into our system and had it spit out ELO ratings for what the Lakers look like with Anthony Davis, what the Pelicans look like. And just for fun, we also looked at what the Warriors look like, uh, assuming no Durant and no Thompson, because that's going to be true either way, uh, by the way, for next season, regardless of whether they re-sign one or both of those guys or none of them, uh, they're not going to have their services for most, if not all, of the regular season. I think Kevin Durant has actually been ruled out you know, completely from next season. Uh, so we looked at that, and the Lakers with Anthony Davis, I kind of expected them to be maybe, you know, improved certainly over last season because last season was kind of a disaster for the Lakers. But I didn't expect them to be improved quite as as much as they are, even with this bare-bones roster. They're looking like a 55-60 to 60 win team. You know, uh, you're, you're looking at a team that is one of the best in the league, one of the best in the West, especially with the Warriors taking a step backwards. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know if the overall favorite to win the championship uh, that, that Vegas seems to be assigning L.A. 
is quite right. That seems like a little bit of an overreaction, but not as much as maybe I was thinking going in. And then the Pelicans, you know, they look improved, but they sort of look like an average team now. Uh, and that's even if they keep Drew Holiday. Um, I think Brandon Ingram grades very poorly according to our, our ratings and, and sort of some of the advanced metrics that you look at. And he's a player that's still young. He might be able to develop past that. But I think he's a player that people have kind of overrated systematically over the years because he looks like he should be a much better player than he actually is. Uh, and, and a lot of the Laker guys uh, kind of fit under that category, the young Lakers. Um, the, the metrics have never been as high on somebody like Kyle Kuzma uh, or Josh Hart uh, or even Lonzo Ball after sort of his initial draft day projections. They've, they've sort of all looked at these guys and been like, okay, where's the development? Where, you know, where, where, what have you shown us since coming into the league? And are you trading on just your original potential or have you actually demonstrated that you're going to be a star? And I think that was one of the reasons why the, the Lakers were unable to really make more moves during the season last year as well was that if any of those guys had actually shown star potential in their play that season playing alongside LeBron James, by the way, you'd think it would make it a little bit easier. Um, they would have had a lot more leverage in some of those trades, but none of those guys really broke through for the most part. What do you think What do you think of the trade, though, in, in, in principle? Was it fair, balanced? Who got the better? I think it was actually pretty balanced in terms of, you know, the Lakers are trying to win in this very uh, compressed window because they know that LeBron James is... Getting old. Uh, yeah, he's getting old. His his uh, peak is, is not going to last forever. It's kind of amazing that even at this age, he still like you know playing at pretty close to a peak level um and so they need to win now they have this fan base that's like staging uh protests because they haven't made the playoffs in a long time which i found hilarious uh but you know they, they are looking at it on the short term and the pelicans who are now awash in all of these assets you know they were able to uh get the number one pick through the lottery so it looks like they're going to get zion williamson they were able right. to get the lakers to send them the number four overall pick in the draft and 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 two more first rounders and then all these potential guys i think they're obviously looking at the long-term future of the team and if you look at the return that they got uh, compared with what other superstar trades have yielded, including ones that the Pelicans have been involved in, in terms of the DeMarcus Cousins trade, uh, the, the, the yield that the Pelicans were able to get from the Lakers in this trade is so much more than some of these other guys that were traded basically for pennies on the dollar. So I, in some ways, I think it was a good trade for both teams because you knew that the Lakers were feeling a lot of pressure to kind of reverse this narrative of being this franchise in disarray and, and dysfunction and actually win. Uh, it's the longest playoff drought in the history of the franchise, and so they were a little desperate. Maybe they overpaid a little bit, uh, you know, in terms of what they gave up. But you could kind of see both teams operating sort of with different time scales. That it it, it kind of makes sense for both teams. And Neil, uh, with the, with the Lakers kind of being the the Vegas favorites now for the championship, perhaps part of that is is that Vegas views the Lakers as not done yet, right? Absolutely. And and um. So again, your sort of Carmelo kind of you know based modeling could give some insight into what like what are the best pieces that the Lakers could still add or or what any team could still add. And I know that the, it gets combinatorially di pretty difficult as you start thinking about like all the free agents that are potentially out there and all the draft picks that could be made. Um, but do you guys sort of look at sort of like kind of like you know almost like an off season model of where to what teams should be doing? Well, you know, we want to start uh, 
you know, after the draft is over and kind of heading into free agency, we want to start to actually be able to update the model the way that we have been doing during the regular season, uh, like on a daily basis, but actually sort of generate depth charts for each team as they currently stand based on who they've signed, who they've drafted, and sort of update that. I mean, you know, we don't go so far as to say, okay, well, the Lakers, you know, have this particular need. They need to add, you know, a uh, uh, point guard to, to play, you know, alongside LeBron, or they need to, but not Kyrie of, Irving. <laughs> well, that would be actually be amazing, uh, and and the Lakers are kind of scrambling to try to uh, get a lot of cap space. You know, they uh, they seem to have misinterpreted the rules and kind of hurt themselves in terms of cap space as well by doing this trade so early. Uh, but yeah, so I, we we're, we're not necessarily projecting who who might be on a team that isn't on the team yet, uh, aside from maybe draft picks. Like I put Zion. And, you know, and, and whoever might be number four overall on the on the Pelicans. Uh, but I think once we start to actually have a better sense of like who's signing where, we'll be able to add them quickly and then sort of have this horse race uh, tracker counter, whatever you want to call it, not just at the beginning of the regular season, but hopefully, you know, like during free agency, you can kind of see in real time how each signing um, affects the team's chances. So actually, speaking of affecting team's chances, what do you think about the Sixers? This is a team that is probably not going to make very many changes, maybe something. I don't know if you have any idea what they might do, but I thought if you, I watched uh, their their series against Toronto, they seem to be extremely evenly matched. Look at the finish. Um, Mm -hmm. And if the Toronto were the champions, I know it's not transitive. That's the the the, uh, the difficulty of basketball, but what do you think of their chances next season? Well, I mean, I our model and and I personally, maybe I'm a little biased from being a Philly resident for so long, uh, but I always liked them and, and and sort of rated them higher than I think Vegas uh, and, and some of the other power ratings thought. I mean, they were a team that clearly had a lot of talent on their team, and, and for a lot of the regular season, maybe didn't quite perform as well as you would expect from that talent. And so that's a good formula for maybe not looking as good in some of the power ratings that you see that sort of focus on the regular season and try to kind of figure out where a team is uh, in, in the present moment, but would look better in a system like ours where we're like, well, look, you know, I know that they haven't been, uh, you know, blowing people out or whatever, but they have Embiid, Simmons, Jimmy Butler, and Tobias Harris. You know, it's like uh, these guys have really high ratings, and a team uh, that with that much talent should do well in the playoffs. And I think they, like you said, I mean, they came within an incredible shot by Kawhi Leonard that bounced on the rim about for two times seconds. Yeah, right. Of of uh, potentially, you know, going to the Eastern Conference Finals, and then you don't know what happens there uh, against the Bucks. I mean, the Bucks were a team that everybody was kind of very high on, especially the the markets were against the Raptors, and that was proven to be kind of wrong, you know, uh, by by the way Toronto played. Uh, so. You know, Philly could kind of look at the season in uh, two different ways. They could look at it a little bit as a disappointment because they didn't actually advance deeper into the playoffs than they did the year before, and this was supposed to be a year of building on that breakout season that they had last year and kind of taking it to the next level. By that standard, they kind of failed, but you could also spin it and look and say, look, this group that we had actually, you know, played against the eventual champions really tough. Uh, and we still have a lot of talent, and some of the stuff that was being said about, you know, will Ben Simmons uh, be a trade bait? Should should they, you know, get rid of him and sell high? All of these things 
hopefully will kind of fall by the wayside and they'll realize exactly how much talent they have. Now, they do need to replace Reddick. They do need to replace Tobias Harris or, try, you know, work out an extension with him. Uh, so there are some players that, that could potentially leave from that core. But, uh, but I think that for the most part, the amount of talent that they have is you know, should be the envy of most teams in the league, and they should be in as good a position as anybody, especially if Kawhi leaves uh, Toronto. The, the Raptors. So also, the Sixers are, I think, pretty early on their aging curve, right? And that's got to matter, matter if you use some sort of Picotta and those kind of systems whereby you predict them to be better because they're they're the good part, right? Is, am I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Embiid, Butler... Simmons, these guys are all under 30 in the case of Embiid and Simmons, well under 30. Right. Uh, and our system just ha- has a tremendous crush on Ben Simmons, I think. I mean, coming out <laughs> of college even, I was, I'm writing a story right now about the, um, what, our, what Carmelo thinks of the 2019 draft prospects. And so Zion Williamson is number one. That's not really a surprise. But I was a little bit surprised that even though he is far and away the best prospect of this year, he would have been easily the best of last year and most of the years we've looked at. Ben Simmons had a higher projection coming out of LSU in terms of future value over the next seven, you know, first seven years as a pro than uh, Zion Williamson does uh, right now. And so that speaks to, you know, Simmons uh, being this unique generational talent uh, and and we forget how young he is i mean he was only 22 last season and uh for all the criticism that he gets for you know not being able to knock down threes the fact that he is still a occasionally dominant and certainly very good nba player despite that uh is is pretty remarkable so i think he's a player that we kind of lose sight of the forest for the trees sometimes well he was talking about him he was a a number one draft pick am i I correct absolutely yeah Yeah, so and one of the things that i that 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 makes i think basketball quite different from the other sports is there's an enormous fall-off between one to two at least if you look historically the draft if you just you know i'm not a you know crazy basketball person but if you just rattle off the last 10 first round draft first number one picks i will know them but if you go to two um, oh, who are these people and right. that's just that seems to be very important and prominent and that would f- would figure that someone like ben simmons is got you know and the number one talent is huge um so, and I, is this does this play out i mean um when you do trades and the drafts i mean we talk about the pelicans picking up all these first rounders they're not the number one pick and they probably just aren't that valuable it's not like in, in nfl yeah I, I think the the curve of value is a lot more gentle in the nfl i mean there's a lot more players to kind of pick from and and, and a lot more players being picked also um but yeah in basketball it's just a sport where one singular player can have such an effect on a team and uh, the the amount of noise around a player also in terms of projecting their career now maybe uh, i was going to say is lower for for basketball top picks than it is for players in other sports now maybe zion williamson is actually a counterexample to that because he is such a unique player and and we don't really have a lot of uh precursors for this type of player who's like six seven but can you know plays as a as a big man, great blocks, steals, rebounds, but also hyper athletic uh, and, and just an all around talent. Um, we haven't seen somebody like that, I think, uh, at least not in recent history. So when we were running our numbers on Zion, it actually um, his closest 
historical comparable was Jalil Okafor, another Duke guy. Hmm. Uh, and that might sound a little concerning because Okafor has kind of had a mediocre you know, start to his career. But when you look at the similarity scores, you know, the average similarity score, it's on like a 0 to 100 scale like the old Bill James ones, um, is about a 60. So, for instance, the uh, similarity between R.J. Barrett and Carmelo Anthony, his number one comparable, is six, you know, 60, 61, something like that. That's such a, yeah, that's such a unique perspective on kind of you know, the, the fact that you guys are doing historical matching for um, kind of projection, yeah. that you can kind of measure essentially the uniqueness of every single player as well. Exactly, yeah. We have the database goes back to 2001. So, you know, you've got uh, Barrett versus Carmelo, that's a 60. That's pretty normal. Then you've got uh, Zion and Jalil Okafor, and that's a 37 out of 100. So it's like so much lower than, than all the other ones, which just speaks to we haven't really seen a player with the mix of different, you know, strengths and, and not really weaknesses. Uh, maybe you could count outside shooting as the, the sole weakness for Zion Williamson. But even there, he's not, he's not Ben Simmons. He's not Ben Simmons. <laughs> I love yeah. that one. Listen, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball, and we are talking to Neil Payne. And listen, Neil, we only have you on for a few more minutes, but I do want to switch gears and allow you to talk a little bit about another sport, which is ongoing. Uh, so you wrote an article recently about baseball. We could talk to you for another hour about baseball without any problem. At least I certainly can. Um, so tell me if you have any, fun, any anything you want to share with us about your insights of the baseball season. You wrote an article about what happened to the National League East, so maybe we can start with that. Yeah, yesterday I wrote, uh, it was actually kind of funny because the Mets instantly uh, blew out the Braves last night. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> there you go. The, but, you know, sometimes that happens the day after, you know, write, you write a story. But the story is basically about how the NL East, which we thought would be the most competitive, you know, most people thought would be the most competitive uh, division in baseball going into the season. You had four legitimate teams that could potentially win the thing in the um, the Braves, who are the defending champs, the Phillies, who showed flashes last year. The Nationals, even though they lost Bryce Harper, still a lot of talent there. And then the Mets, who went out and made uh, a big splash over the offseason. Well, you know, now we're about eh, not quite halfway through the season, but it looks like the Braves and Phillies have kind of pulled away from the Nats and the Mets. In the right standings, though, I don't think I don't think in, in actual value. I mean, if you look at sort of maybe your ELO or run differential, they don't seem that far apart. No, they don't seem that far apart. But what's interesting is that, you know, when you build in, uh, I think it's, you know, a lead on the on the order of eight games, nine games, right. something like yeah. that, between sort of the, especially between the Braves and the, the bottom two of that four-team group. Sorry to the Marlins, by the way. <laughs> Forget them. Uh, don't, don't really talk those, about those them. Those guys are, the Marlins are hitting expectations that. right on the nose. <laughs> they are, yeah. yes. Uh, well below um, uh, average, well well below 500. But anyway, so um, I, I think it speaks to, it's very difficult to climb out of that level of a hole. And, you know, the Nationals on paper look pretty equivalent to the Braves and the Phillies so far, uh, but they do have that huge hole that they've dug for themselves. And the Mets just don't seem like they're quite as good. You know, you knew that that team was going to need some breaks to be able to sort of, uh, you know, vie for the playoffs or potentially win the division, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to have happened. Robbie Cano, for instance, hasn't really lived up to expectations, and they do have some guys that are outperforming them, like Pete Alonso has been amazing right, right. so far, but then, you know, DeGrom regressed a little bit. He's still having a great season, but not the sort of all-time season that Syndergaard's he had last also year. been a little bit underwhelming. 
and and injured uh, at times as well. Uh, but that's nothing new for him the past few years. Right. So I, I think that you know all of that kind of comes together, and that's why we give the Braves or the Phillies. So one of those two teams uh, has about an 82 percent chance of winning the NL East right now. So not impossible for the Nats or the Mets to stage a comeback, but it would be sort of very unlikely uh, based on you know what we've seen a half halfway into the season and that was interesting to me because you could have picked any of those teams and told me that they had a two of them had a combined 82 percent chance of winning uh and and at certain points early in the season the Braves did not look like they would be in that group uh but you know now it, it does seem like this upper tier has coalesced but maybe maybe um you know the the Mets and the Nationals can pull off uh, a little bit of an upset and come back who knows so as a final question let's uh, speaking of other divisions in baseball what do you think about the twins they seem to be ridiculously were they on anybody's radar before the season well, you know, uh, so one of my uh, best friends at the office is a Twins fan, so I was kind of attuned to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the preseason, I wrote a piece about how Byron Buxton, um, he had one of the best uh, OPSs in all of baseball during spring training, which sounds kind of silly to yeah. think about. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, I did some research a few years ago that found that players that significantly outperform their expectations in spring training do tend to uh, have better-than-expected seasons during uh, the regular season as well. Interesting. Uh, and, and it is a, you know, uh, it's not a huge effect, but it is a real effect uh, that you can kind of see over time. And so I kind of pegged him as a breakout, re-breakout, I guess, because he broke out a couple years ago, then had a Regressed, injured, yep, miserable yep. year mm-hmm. last year, but um, has been a lot better this year. I think what we didn't account for is the fact that they, uh, the rest of the lineup is hitting so many home oh runs. Oh my God. And, and, and their pitching has also been very good. You know, you have some guys that don't necessarily have a track record of being dominant, like Jake Odorizzi and Kyle Gibson and people like that, uh, having good years as well. And so it's sort of all coming together for them. I think it's telling that when you look at our ratings, we think that the Twins still aren't as good as the Red Sox, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not especially close. They're roughly equivalent with the Rays, uh, and and we have them higher than the Indians, um, a team that's really kind of scuffled coming out um, and and seem to have taken the division for granted going into the season, and the yeah. Twins have sort of like stuck it to them, which I applaud. I, I like to see a team, you know, the Indians sort of tried to do this like, Contend and tank strategy where they contend were like tank. Their, I love it. <laughs> shopping some of their top players and trying to kind of take for granted, like how, how much, how many wins can we give away this year while still having a cushion over these bums that are in our division? And right. the Twins are like, hey. Don't tr- don't take anything for granted. We're, we're, we're here behind thing. you. Listen, Neil, yeah. it's been great talking to you. Um, we could talk about so many other sports. We're going to have to have you on b- back fairly soon t- in the heart of the baseball season. So thanks for joining us this morning. It's great to be here talking about sports. Statisticians are the, the cool kids on the block these days. You know, back then, who wanted to talk to a statistician? But now, you know, with sports, yeah. fundamental data everywhere. Yeah, thank goodness. Charming, charming people like you, me, and Neil Payne have led <laughs> right. the way to led the, the way. Uh, exce- you know, a, gr- a greater a greater acceptance of statistic methodology. Yeah. <laughs> so right, well, I did ask for that one, I guess. <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> so we're on our final segment. Um, we have a little bit of time to uh, break down a little bit of, uh, of, of, uh, of or stats or some sports before we get to our final over-under segment. I thought we would we'd lead with some baseball. Mm. Um, we were we were talking with Neil about the Twins. Here's a stat about the Twins. It's almost you know shocking. In their in their entire team history, they 
Harmon Killebrew leads the, the Twins with the highest slugging percentage, 518. Yeah. Then it goes down Justin Morneau, he's 5485, uh, Ken Herbeck, 41. All right. No Joe Maurer, I'm a little surprised by Joe, that. Well, you yeah. know, right. catcher. Um, yeah, still, to, very good scaled. catcher, damn. But the entire team is at the Harmon Killebrew level this year. This year's Twins, the entire team wow. is hitting collectively yeah. as if they're their greatest slugger in Twins history. And presumably, I mean, I, I, you, you would probably say that that's not sustainable. For no, like I, it's not going to be sustainable. And first of all, you have to recognize we're talking about Harmon I mean, they Killebrew's. don't really have to sustain to still roll into the playoffs. No, but. no. And it's we're also comparing a little bit of apples to oranges. So, of course, the team versus an individual player. But this is the team's, this is Killebrew's career performance, not just, not his best in a single season. Yeah. It's his career. But still, that just speaks volumes about what the Twins are doing at the plate. And they're on track to just Destroy the Yankees' single-season home run record, which mm-hmm. was set last year. Um, they're, 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 they're you know, the Yankees could make a run at that still yeah. with all their players coming back. Well, with, with, with uh, of course, Stanton back already, yeah. Judge arriving later this week, and then Encarnacion being added to the Yankee lineup. That's silly. They talk about it's murderer's just, row. It is really yeah. silly. Uh-huh. But uh, I'm going to turn our attention to what everybody recognizes still to be baseball's best player. Who just manages to drop Mookie off? Betts. Mookie Betts. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the Red Sox, yeah. um, speak, no. Uh, in, Trout. You know, I assume you're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. And w- one of the reasons why I think it's important to bring our attention back to this guy is that he's so easily forgotten. Well, he's so consistently amazing. <laughs> it's it, it's like I, I guess to I, I mean. It well, makes wanna, you think wanna, about what the word amazing means, well, right? I also, want, I also want to take it apart and, and ask you what the word amazing is. Yeah. And I think one of the things that makes Trout amazing in the differential way is he's not the best home runner in the league. Yeah. He's, not the, he's not the best defensive player in the league. Um, and put it so and he's he not just the best does runner. everything he just does everything ex- with excellence with and, excellence and he does it in such a very predictable way in a consistent predictable way i mean it sort of does make you kind of think about you know the words like amazing or 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 whatever fantastic you kind of think that there has to be an element of surprise somewhere there and so if this guy does this see in season after season after season um and baseball itself being kind of like a more kind of cumulative like thing um yeah, I, I just it blows my mind. Actually, kind of it blows my mind how good he is and how he doesn't get as much attention as maybe we right. kind of think. So we it just should. we typically forget I mean, about him. We'd love to be able to see that guy in October sometimes. Right, right. That, that I mean, is that a huge would factor. Help. It would and help. Also, yeah, the Angels are just never that competitive. Yeah, um, and that's part of the reason. But this year, Trout is has, he's already hit twenty home runs. Yeah, he has nearly fifty RBIs. He has a ridiculous OPS of nearly eleven hundred. Yeah. his on base percentage is four sixty two. Now that is yeah. testimony to partly because he plays on a crap-ass team and or whatever the conventional term for that is. He, had, he gets walked a He lot. gets walked. He gets pitched around. And and uh, and he has 11, I think 11 or 17 intentional walks, some enormous yeah. number of intentional walks already. It's not quite Barry Bonds level, but but is that. He plays but he, center but field. Barry Bonds is probably, you know, at least the most re- like the most recent comparable, basically. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And Actually, quite honestly, if you look at it, look at trajectory, he's, he's the coming, second coming of Mickey Mantle. Yeah. Without any problem yeah no and i mean i you know i i hope he continues to do it i hope he doesn't you know i mean I, you know I, I think people kind of 
I, I hope he doesn't kind of go the Ken Griffey Jr. route where right. we sort of right. like, you know, kind of just falls apart at a little bit like earlier age than we, we want him to, basically. Um, I hope he continues to do it, and I hope the Angels somehow get be- good enough get so that better. we can start seeing this guy in October. Because well, I think it would, be, it would be nice to sort of have him a little bit part, bigger part of the national consciousness. Basically, uh, in terms of baseball. Indeed. So what else are we thinking about in baseball? Let's go back to our division, the and the uh, the American League East. Do this we is, have to really talk about We have to talk one. about it. Okay, so, right, so, right. yeah, so we have. It's, it's, very, it's, it's actually quite interesting. The Yankees are leading the division. The Rays, who are surprising, are right behind. And the Red Sox are playing have very scuffled. good ball. Well, yeah. Uh, well, no, they, I mean, they they, they've been playing. They've been, they've been coming up lately. Um, I mean, certainly. But they are still, at this point in the season, at 500. And I guess, given their start, maybe I should be completely satisfied. With them just being at five hundred at this point, but they're a little you know, above five hundred. But they're they're about they're six like a games game out. above yeah. five hundred. But you know they're like eight games back of the Yankees, I believe, or something like that right now. Maybe seven games back, and that's a as Neil was sort eight, of yeah. hinting at. That is a big that's a big deficit. I don't I don't really see the Red Sox. Coming back from that, I don't think it's. Don't, I, I huh? think it's going to be tw- between the Rays and the Yankees at the end for the division. I think it's probably going to be the Yankees. All right, Whether well, then you can well, get past that. the Astros in the playoffs, that's a whole other thing. Matter. But, but I will point out uh, part of the difficulty of the Red Sox is they have the Rays in the middle. Yeah, um, I will remember a July fourteenth of. Uh, I guess it was 1978 when the Red Sox were 14 and a half games ahead of the New York Yankees yeah. and managed to lose. Oh well, so, yeah. Well, you can. We so, can, so fourteen. And we a can half talk games. about blowing leads all all, sh- all the rest <laughs> right. of the show if you'd really like to get down <laughs> right, right. into yeah, it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, here we go. All but right. um, but no, I mean, I, I I and teams can make a run. So I mean, and and the Red Sox are certainly hooked up to make that run. If you um, you know, I just you know, I I'm, I'm not going to kind of necessarily yeah. bet on a run like that. Sure, I wouldn't either. But speaking of uh, betting, yeah. why don't we conclude with our final segment? It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. All right. Well, we were talking baseball, so let's start with baseball. Um, And we were talking twins, so let's start with the twins. So, Okay, so the first Over Under we're going to talk about is 2.5 seed of the twins in the AL playoffs. So... um, are they coming? When do they come in? When when the playoffs start? Are they going to be essentially the one of the top two teams in the AL, or are they going to be below that? Wow! Yeah. All right. So let's tough. let's pack. Let's unpack this. So basically, will they pass the Astros, who look like the most dominant team in the West? Will they pass the Yankees? Um, who are right now the dominant team mm. in the East, and of course there's the Rays. So they do have. They are right now in the so have the second best record in the AL. They do. So. They do. And the only question is how sustainable is that? Yeah. Um, and who knows? Because, I mean, I, I definitely have to factor in regression to the mean. So I'm going to go with under. Uh, no, over. The over three or three or higher. And of course, yeah. I have the the option. That, you know, I have the total collapse on my side yeah. as well. So I get all that room. There's lots of room above and very room below. Little room below. So I am going over on the twins. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I I I'm going to have to agree. Basically, it comes down to. I mean, I'm going to just kind of write the Astros in out of the uh, out of the West, and I think the Twins will still win the division in the Central. But I do not see them at the end of the season 
having a better record than the New York Yankees. I mean, the counter-argument, of course, is that they do play in a worse division in general. They, they've got a couple more teams to beat up on in the yep. Central. Um, but I still think the Yankees will finish with a better record than the Twins, which is all we need to really kind of have happen, assuming the Astros also maintain themselves. Well, let's just also point out the Yankees have played the almost the entirety of their season without Mike Stanton, yeah, without Aaron Judge, without Ed, Edgar Encarnacion, Encarnacion without... I will, I will say also the Yankees um, have played um, the Orioles about 40 times. <laughs> yes, and beating them 45. You know, um, so... Strength um, of schedule, right, certainly. There, and, there, there is, I, I did look at strength of schedule, and the Yankees have had a very favorable schedule thus far, but that said... You know, to a certain extent, you could call them lucky for sort of having the, their, this week's schedule during a time when they kind of had so much injury, so such an injury uh, problem. And now that they've got all those big hitters coming back, it's scary. It's scary. It's scary. All right. So, so there I, don't, I, I don't like the I like the Twins' odds of being in the playoffs. I don't like them as being the top two teams in the in the um, in the league. Um, right, well, so so I'm going to take over on that as well. All right. So. We talked also uh, at length with Neil Payne about uh, the NL East. This next over-under is 2.5 NL East teams above 500 at the end of the year. So the Braves are certainly 12 games above. The Phillies are now 7 games above. Mets are 3 games below. Nats are 5 games below. And, of course, these teams do get to beat up on the Marlins, who we can pretty much guarantee will not be above 500 uh, by the end of the year. So, really, what again we're betting on is three. Either you know, either do, three. Do, do, do you think there's going to be um, two or three teams, or possibly four um, teams above 500 at the end of the year? Well, the NL East. It's your turn to lead. Yeah, so I'm going to ask yeah, you to no, go first. Um, and I am going to say, I actually think. I'm a, kind of a believer in the Nationals. I think the Nationals have been scuffling so far, but they are playing. I, I, I think their record uh, um, is much more, uh, much worse than their team actually is. And given that they get to beat up on the Marlins, um, I'm going to actually take the over on this. I'm going to say there's going to be, I, I think the Nationals, um, or possibly the Mets, one of the two is all I need, are going to squeak above 500. All right. Well, that's a, a, a well thought out pick. I think I'm probably going to have to agree with it. I'm looking at the at the overall records, and the Marlins are the only beat upable team really in the entire National League. There isn't a, a second. I mean, I think uh, the, I think the Giants are pretty poor, but they're pretty bad. But are they as bad as the Orioles or the Jays? And, and they, again, the for, Kansas for, City Royals. No, and you no, know, and the Tigers. For, and for the sake of this argument, probably they're not going to be playing. You know, the NL East teams enough for that to really kind of right. Matter. So, so basically. They do get to beat up on the Marlins, um, but they don't. And the, there's a lot of competition. And I think it's, things are pretty close. So I think this is a pretty good over/under. I mean, I think it's going to be a close one. I do believe a little bit more in the Nationals than um, than their record indica- indicates. I don't believe in the Mets. Um, I also have to say, I think the the Phillies do look like they've overplayed. Mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, um, I do think they'll end yeah, up so over Yeah, so I could 500. be wrong if one of those others. Uh, That's right. Philly or Atlanta yeah. slips under. I think there's. A, I mean, the, the Phillies have won a lot of close games. They've won with sequencing. But I'm going to agree with you and go over as well, just because, you know, it's baseball and I love the narrative. No, no, I love it too. (laughs) All right, so um, the other thing that we've kind of been talking about uh, is, you know, just to finish off uh, baseball, 
is the NL in general. And the one team that we haven't really talked about much is the Dodgers, just because uh, they've been kind of so amazing. They've been spectacular. <laughs> I mean, they've been doing this for two or three, year, uh, three or right, four yeah. years now, just putting up these gaudy um, regular season totals. And this one's about that. 9.5 Dodgers wins above the next NL team. NL team? Wow. Yeah. So they are they gonna are they gonna beat the next NL team by nine point five? And just again for full information, they're currently six wins above the NL leading Brave uh, NL East leading Braves, nine above the Brewers, um, and they're projected at one hundred and one wins from FanGraphs. Whereas the Braves are at ninety, Cubs are at eighty eight. So the projections today easily. Yeah, the projections say yes. All right. Well, uh, it's my turn to go first. I'm going to fall back on projections. I think that's the way to go and saying yes. I mean, it's interesting because I think one argument would be, now here's, here. uh, uh, wait a minute. I'm making making a mistake. And and since you haven't gone yet, I think I'm making it. I have to revise that. Projections are mean. We're looking for the max among the projections Mm. and not the, we don't want to compare what any individual team would be. So if you had to, You had to ask me one for one. I would say the Dodgers are going to be ten games ahead of every team, one at one at a time. But you're not asking me that. You're asking me, will there exist a single team for which is within ten games of the Dodgers? And so I'm going to revise my original one and go with the Dodgers will not end up ten games ahead of the next best. Yeah, and I mean, I I think I I I have to say as well among those other teams like the Brewers, especially or 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 or, or maybe the Cubs. Cubs. So yeah. All you need is one, one of, of those other out. teams to make a run. Um, and, and, 93, and the Dodgers also. Wins. I mean, if the Dodgers are like up by like fifteen games at the start of September right. or something like that, they may not actually be um, playing all that hard in that in that final right. month. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take the under as well. I think it's gonna be under nine point five, which is. Still amazing All that right. we've been talking about that. All right. We got three minutes left for our show. Come on. Okay. What you got is a finale. All right. All right. Well, we got to shift to the NFL. Oh, I want us to start talking NFL. football as early as possible, and we might as well, now that now that NBA and NHL have wrapped up, 4.5 Daniel Jones starts this year. No. And just to remind you, Daniel Jones is the sixth pick in the NFL draft. Right, the, the 60th the, uh, the, pick. The did, you the, did you say the, the 60th pick, right? That sixth. seems like he was predicted to be. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, six, he was, yeah. sixth pick. Sixth oh, pick. Sixth. Uh, the heir apparent hmm. at, uh, for the New York football giants. Um, what do you think? I will say that... Well, the, you, you know, start on this one. Yeah, so, okay. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, and just to kind of give the, a little bit of narrative as, as we wind down, um, when he was first drafted, you know, it was we were all assured that Eli Manning was their quarterback for the season, but it's kind of... That that kind of, you know, statement has eroded a bit. Now we're sort of hearing that it's going to be a legit quarterback battle for the New York Giants this year. Um, I still think... Eli Eli Manning Manning will probably play the whole season. If he doesn't, Daniel Jones will probably not play all that many games. I'm going to take the under on this. I think under 4.5. So So that's the whole quarter of the season. This is starts. Starts. And uh, I think he'll play in four games during the season. But I don't. I would agree with you. I don't think. I think that he's the quarterback for the Giants of the future. But I think Eli has got some backing support. I don't know. I mean, uh, this is a complicated one. And NFL's is you it's know, a great over under in the sense of like, you know, I mean, there's a lot right? of different factors that go into I mean, cuz he could play he could we could win this if he plays 5. Um 
you know, Eli could go down, right? Yeah. That's what's yeah, the Eli probability. Could get injured. What is it? What is very Eli? durable, by the way. Eli, Eli has been That's, very durable. Yeah, he has. We, I don't. I we, don't remember an Eli injury, frankly. Which explains why they. Which Giants explains are why this very <laughs> underwhelming quarterback has right. got these gaudy totals for his career. But anyway, whatever. This is not about Eli. This is about Daniel it Jones. It kind of is about Eli. Yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to just forestall yeah. actually having to make a commitment on this one. So you've gone under. I've so gone I under. could take the safe bet would be to follow the expert, right? So I don't have any real deep knowledge of the of Eli Manning. Uh, I I'm I, Am I, I think, the expert on this one? Well, well, in Eek. the room. Yikes. <laughs> we don't have Eric or Katie to uh to sort of follow. I mean, you have to remember the order is very useful. So I'm going to oh god. I'm going to be contrary. I think yeah. he's going to start more than four games. There it is. I just tossed it out. It was a, right. it was an Eric Brown. Anyway, so there we are. Over my I'm over, and that concludes our our over under segment, and actually concludes our show for this morning. And I'd like to wrap it up by thanking our producer Matt Datz, our sound engineer Danielle Bruno, our assistant producer Zach Drapkin. This has been a wonderful hour, uh, two hours of Wharton Moneyball, and we look forward to talking to you again in a week's time. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.